0: My grandmother once told me the difference between her travels and mine was that she had to burn all of her bridges as she moved forward. The bridge always burned
1: or was destroyed. There was nowhere to go back again. Once you made another step, you couldn't step back.
0: On September 29, 2014, I moved to Europe. First, I went to Poland to see Sergio. He gave me a home base during my travels. Someone to come back to. In the back of my head, it felt unfair. I had support when my grandmother didn't. I was supposed to be doing this alone. Then I went to Prague. I moved into the home of a stranger. A young woman from the Jewish community who was kind enough to let me live in her spare room. If I was going to live the way my grandmother did... I had to rely on people the way she did. The nightmares came quickly. I dreamt I came home to Boston, and my friends looked through me like I was a ghost. One night, I woke up certain that the building was on fire. My body burned, I ripped off the blanket, I curled my legs to my chest and rocked back and forth, like the Orthodox men I'd seen in prayer at the old synagogue earlier that week. It was just the beginning of my trip, and already, the loneliness was so deep Already, I couldn't exactly explain to anyone what I was doing or why. I had no money. I'd given up my home. I'd separated myself from my friends. I felt isolated from everyone, even Sergio. It was just me and my grandmother. But I was committed to her and her story. It felt more important than anything, even my relationship with Sergio. Even though these two commitments never came into conflict— I knew. I'm Rachel Cerati. We share the same sky. September 29th, 1938. It's a Thursday, and it's raining in Prague. Hannah's 13 years old. Her brother's nine. His name is Peter. They live with their parents in a modest second-floor apartment. It has a wraparound balcony that connects them to their neighbors and the communal toilet. It's a school day. Her father sits at the breakfast table and reads his favorite newspaper. It's written in German, the most influential liberal democratic newspaper in Czechoslovakia. The paper hides his face even as the corners fold over. Hannah reads the headlines on the other side. It says something about Hitler wanting a part of Czechoslovakia, but she's distracted by her own thoughts. She can't stop thinking about a boy, a boy named Dasha.
2: We were waiting all very happily just now, about 20 minutes ago, at a rather threatening sky, but not a particularly bad one. Suddenly, rain began to fall, and it got harder and harder until the tarmac of the airport is skiddy and flooded, and everybody's looking very wet.
0: When it's time, Hannah gathers her bag and takes the streetcar to school. She and her classmates bow to the teacher as they enter the classroom. Then they take their seats and sit straight with their hands behind their back. It's the mandatory posture. In history class, she learns about the Great World War, which feels ancient. She's taught that Czechoslovakia was created in 1918 at the end of that war. She understands that before her country gained independence, that it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And she knows that her father fought in this war, but it all feels irrelevant. It happened before she was born. Hannah goes directly home after school. She has to finish her homework before she can meet her friends at the gymnasium. And maybe, at the gymnasium, she'll see Dasha. She likes him so much. At the end of that normal Thursday, on September 29th, 1938, Hannah lies in bed. It's become common to fall asleep to the sounds of her mother shushing her father as they listen to the radio. They're listening to a news report. She hears the radio static, but can't make out the words. She closes her eyes. She tells herself stories built from today's memories. She narrates the stories with the words she keeps hearing from her parents and grandparents. It can never happen here.
2: Now they bring her up. The police are coming forward. And the Lord Chamberlain is to be seen down there, waiting to greet Mr. Chamberlain. I believe he'll be the first person to meet him as he steps out of the machine. I want to thank the British people for what they have done. And next, next I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem which has now been achieved is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement ...in which all Europe may find peace.
0: (laughs) Hannah didn't know it yet, but this is what happened on that September 29th, the Thursday in 1938. There was a conference held in Munich, Germany. Hitler had now been in power for five years. It had only taken him the first six months to consolidate power. He turned a democracy into a one-party dictatorship... He drafted emergency legislation that suspended civil liberties. He got rid of habeas corpus. He deputized the stormtroopers. He targeted communists, socialists, state delegates, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witness, the mentally disabled, Germans of African descent, and Jews. He overfilled the jails, and then used schools and gymnasiums for his prisoners. And then, when those were over capacity, he built concentration camps. He murdered his opponents, he burned their books, and he amended the German constitution and gave himself emergency powers. All in six months.
2: This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. In
0: 1938, Hitler annexed Austria. Now he was demanding to take control of a German speaking part of Czechoslovakia called Sudetenland. He was threatening a European war if he didn't get what he wanted. So his fellow Europeans complied.
2: We, the German Fuhrer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again.
0: The leaders of Great Britain, Italy, and France signed what was called the Munich Agreement. They agreed to let Germany annex a part of Czechoslovakia. In exchange for Hitler's pledge of peace, they gave away their neighbor. The Czech government wasn't even invited to attend the negotiations. Everyone knew what this meant. At least everyone in Czechoslovakia knew what this meant. The Munich Agreement. The loss of land. Getting annexed by Germany. This was a death warrant.
1: We were told there's going to be a war, and so we were exercising with gas masks and have to crawl under the school desks and so on.
0: That's Hannah again, my grandmother.
1: Because we were told that either the English are going to gas us or the Germans are going to gas us, or somebody is going to gas us.
0: The Nazis paraded into Prague six months after the Munich Agreement was signed. Czechoslovakia was no more.
1: Everybody was trying to get out. Even my parents were trying to get out. Everybody was looking for a relative outside of the German Reich. And my grandmother had a stepsister in Cincinnati, Ohio.
0: So Hannah's father wrote to this relative. He asked them for an affidavit, basically a pledge of financial sponsorship, if he could get them to America. This would help them get a visa.
1: And they said, it's not so easy for us. And I knew that they were trying to get out. We all were trying to get out, and I told that I should learn they bought a knitting machine, that I should learn how to knit sweaters on the knitting machine so we could make a living wherever we would immigrate to.
0: Hannah's mother was reschooling herself in baking and sewing. Everyone was prioritizing learning a trade.
1: And the country which they applied to said no, no, no. That one country they said we are going to go to Uganda. Uganda is the country which wants you, which could take you. Not wants you, but could take you. And I wrote it on UGA, look at the atlas, couldn't find that country, nowhere. Find out it's way in Africa.
0: But it never came to pass, they never left. Uganda was just one of many places proposed by the Zionist movement as a homeland for the Jews. Centuries of religious persecution were now enclosed by Hitler's propaganda, and the Jews of Europe were desperate for a solution. The anti-Semitism had been subtle before.
1: We were always taught not to make waves. We were taught blend into the woodwork. If somebody calls you some kind of a name, you know, dirty Jew or something, that was about the worst. We never were physically beaten up. We were taught Let it pass. Let it go. I think the parents went through it, the grandparents went through it. They survived, so they felt, you know, don't answer, don't go back, don't fight for yourself.
0: After the Nazi occupation, anti-Jewish laws were put in place quickly. Ghettos, ration cards, the freezing of financial assets, restrictions on professions for the parents and education for the kids, the social and financial rights of the Jewish community were stripped. The
1: war came to me in coming to school and saying Jewish students are forbidden, not, not permitted, but forbidden, to enter these premises. That's how the war came to me. Czechoslovakia didn't exist anymore. We were the protectorate of the
0: German Reich. That was in March, 1939. Hannah turned 14 the following July.
1: And there was a boy whom I liked. I got kissed the first time on my 14th birthday under the table, and that was in Prague.
0: The story goes that Hannah dropped her fork at dinner. When she went to pick it up, her crush, Dasha, met her there and kissed her. It was quick.
1: And I thought that I never wanted to crawl from under the table, I'm going to beg because everybody's going to see that I've been kissed under the table and I really wanted to be with him. No
3: one knows what is going to happen within the next 24 or 48 hours. I don't think that either Chamberlain or Hitler really know at this minute.
0: Jan Masaryk, the Czech diplomat in London.
3: But one thing is very definitely sure, If the war starts, it will be Hitler who is the guilty party.
0: Everything was changing. Hitler had lied. Sudetenland, the part of Czechoslovakia he got in the Munich Agreement, was just the tip of the iceberg in his quest to conquer Europe. Now, there were threats of other countries being occupied.
3: We may have war even before I finish this little talk, or we may have another attempt at negotiation. If there is even a vestige of the Munich spirit left to initiate these negotiations, they are doomed to be a dismal failure. The only possible chance of success without bloodshed is for Hitler to climb down from the Trojan horse on which he has galloped from Munich to Berlin and then to Vienna, Memel, Prague, and so forth, and now towards Warsaw. From now on, he must walk, even walk backwards a bit, Let me be perfectly frank. I believe I have the right to be so. If Hitler attempts another bloodless victory for vulgar gangsterism, and the world, including the United States of America, let him get away with it. I have no illusions about the future of the European civilization. And what's more, we all deserve what is coming to us.
0: Five days later, Germany invaded Poland from the west. A couple weeks after that, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the east. The war had begun. It was obvious now. Neither Hannah's family nor Dasha's family would be able to get out. But there were some options for the children. Rescue missions were set in motion. The Kindertransport is probably the best known. That was organized by the British and saved about 10,000 Jewish children by bringing them to England. In America, a senator from my home state in Massachusetts proposed a bill to Congress for a similar plan in the United States, but public opinion said no. The wife of the U.S. Commissioner of Immigration, who happened to also be the cousin of President Roosevelt, publicly stated about the Jewish kids, quote, 20,000 charming children would all too soon grow into 20,000 ugly adults. Such racism didn't feel unique at this time. Walls were being built around borders. In the cases of some countries, like Czechoslovakia, the walls kept people in. And in other places, like America, the walls were built to keep people out. But Hannah was lucky, and so was Dasha. They were members of the Zionist youth movement, and that gave them an option to leave.
1: Let's go, let's go to Hakshara. Hakshara means preparation to toil the land in Palestine, if the British would allow that.
0: Zionism was a movement by the Jewish people to find a homeland. During the years of Hitler's rule, it became an increasingly popular movement even for the most assimilated Jews. Hannah and Dasha were both members of their chapter of the youth movement, and it is because of this involvement that they were able to flee Czechoslovakia. The Zionist movement applied to an organization called the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and it was because of them that my grandmother's group of friends was saved.
4: I had to know the backstory of this.
0: I found, did you know the story behind all this?
4: I I don't know. Either way, it might be a different story. Okay. It was so amazing. One time, I...
0: That's Ava Bergman, Dasha's daughter. um, Dasha, Hannah's first love. Our families have been friends for four generations. But I only got close with them when I started researching my grandmother's life. On this day, we are sitting with her brother Michael and his son. We are at Michael's home in Copenhagen, eating cake and drinking tea while reading the letters and memoirs written by Hannah and Dasha. So here's the story.
4: I I have lived a lot abroad. And one time, um, there was a little private library in the place where it was. It was a big place with a lot of people. And I think someone put it by my door Uh, female saints east and west and then it spoke about all these um women who were really amazing women in christianity and hinduism and all this different and there was one little chapter about um, judaism and said in in judaism there are no saints it doesn't exist but there's one woman if there should be who should and she went with her dad to palestine like maybe a hundred years ago a little bit earlier than that and there was no infrastructure There was a lot of malaria, and it was really, really poor. And so she took it upon herself to help people, and so what she did, she went back to the U.S. and raised money to educate
0: some nurses. This woman, Henrietta Zold, was born in Baltimore in 1860. At the age of 49, she began campaigning to establish health and social welfare services for the Arabs and the Jews of Palestine. This was her life's work, and it extended to protecting the persecuted children in Europe during World War II. As Eva continues the story, you can hear her brother Michael murmuring responses in the background. And what
4: happened was, when Hitler took over, she realized that she couldn't save everyone, but she could try to save the children. And at that time, the British had a a deal with the Ottoman Empire that there could only be this many Jews coming to Palestine a year. And so she made a deal that a part of this would be children. So they went to Denmark, and from there they would then go to Palestine.
1: I was one of the chosen ones. I learned later that you were not just picked to go, The parents paid quite a large sum of money to get their children out. My brother couldn't go because he was young, too young.
0: My grandmother said it was like receiving a lottery ticket to be allowed to leave.
1: We stood in front of the Gestapo for night and days to get exit permits to leave. The war already was declared. But we did leave. We did go by train through Berlin to Denmark.
0: Hannah had no idea that this would be the beginning of nearly two decades as a stateless person. It was just the first stop in her refugee story.
1: I, for one, thought that I'm entering a big adventure. I was really sort of almost happy that I at this age am going to this adventure being alone and going to a strange country and going to make it on my own. I uh, never believed and I don't think they ever believed that this is the last time that we see each other.
0: In Prague, I spend hours at the train station. I watch the trains come and go and imagine Hannah's departure. I see it in a string of black and white snapshots. Hannah's head peeking out of the train window, her family on the platform. She waves at them furiously. Her mother wipes her eyes with a handkerchief. Her father stands with one hand on his wife's waist, the other hand on his son's shoulder. No one is sure what comes next. I imagine all of the parents as they stand there. They exchange glances, seeking approval from each other. They need to know that they're doing the right thing by saying goodbye. They need to believe it's safer to send their children into the unknown than to have them stay home. The grief fills the station like a thick fog. The whistle blows. The train jumps forward. It begins to move, first slowly, then faster, and now to full speed. The still frames of the train become a blur, but Hannah's parents remain frozen. They are the last frame in Prague. But
1: it was exciting in a way. There was some excitement in the air, some unusual things were happening and sad and exciting at the same time, I would say.
0: Hannah, Dasha, and the other kids traveled by train through Germany. My grandmother told me that when she transferred trains in Berlin, she had to wait as some of the girls were taken into private rooms and stripped by the Nazis. Their bodies were searched to make sure they weren't smuggling any silver or gold. Hannah was spared from the assault. Instead, she stayed near Dasha. Then, they took a boat to Denmark. Once in Denmark, they took a train to Copenhagen and were met by the volunteers from the women's organization. And from there, each child was put on another train and given directions to their new home. I was assigned
1: to one village and I switched with that girl. I said, I want to be near Dasha. And I did that. Um, I switched, and I got into a farm, and I mean, I was punished for that. (laughs) Because we were way away from the other children. The other children were placed in farms where they could sort of meet each other, and we were away from the other ones.
0: Hannah and Dasha would see each other about every two weeks. Overnight, they became refugees. They didn't speak a word of the Danish language, and they knew nothing about farm life. I learned that the farmers
1: were told that they are getting either maid, if was a female in the house, and because the females were responsible for the vegetable gardens and the cow sheds and so on. And the boys were the farm hands. And that's what the farmers were told, take these children in and they're going to help you in your chores on the farm, I did not know anything about farm chores.
0: Hannah didn't even know that milk came from cows. She thought it came from the milkman who delivered it in glass bottles each morning back when she lived in Prague. But you learn because there's no other way
1: to go around, and I learned how to milk cows, and I learned how to take care of the chicks. And I learned even. When they came to slaughter the pig to... In Denmark, they eat a lot of blood pudding. And when the blood flows from the pig, you have to stir the blood so it doesn't coagulate, so you have your hand all the way up to here in the bucket of blood. So I learned how to do that too, and then do the blood pudding and turn the intestines inside out to make sausages. I learned all that. However, we were not no more than October to April, and then Denmark was invaded by the Germans.
0: Germany invaded Denmark on April 9th,
1: 1940. So here we go
0: again, but we didn't. We didn't go again. At least not yet. Not until the next September 29th in this story the one in 1943. But in the meantime, Hannah adapted to life on the farm.
1: I was placed in a farm which had no electricity and no running water. So I had to go in the morning and pump the water. But while I was pumping the water, I was learning Hebrew vocabulary. I remember we had a washing machine which cranked cranked my hand and I said, for every crank, I have to know one Hebrew word, one Hebrew word. And so there was all preparation for toiling the land and building a homeland for the Jews.
0: Hannah's Diary, July 14th, 1940, age 15. I cannot stand my old place. I resented the people, their children would beat me. I kept tidying up constantly, without any lasting effect. There were a thousand little reasons, as well as big ones, for me to leave. I've broken up with Dasha. It may have been awful for me, but good in a way. One day, we were lying next to each other, and I am convinced that he too was very happy. He was telling me that he liked me very much, and that I'm pretty, and have smooth cheeks, and all the things that a person in love can say. I was saying nothing, just listening. That was the first month in Denmark. I did like him. I don't deny that. But I wonder, how could I like him if he was the person I know him as now? And if he wasn't, how could he change in that time? Half a year. War romances, like any love stories, don't always go the way you plan. In February of 2015, after I followed Hannah to Prague, I followed her to Denmark. I took her train route through Germany, and then a boat across the Baltic Sea. I sent Sergio selfies and snapshots along the way. We were both excited for my next step. I would move to a Danish farm, just like Hannah. The night before my trip into the countryside, I sat in a cafe in Copenhagen, I had decided to take myself to dinner at a vegetarian restaurant that had become a favorite of mine. They served big bowls of soup and hearty pieces of bread. I sat there and listened to other people's conversations. A first date was happening next to me, between a young British man and a woman who was from America, or Canada. I couldn't quite tell from her accent. They were talking about their grandparents. I smiled to myself. That's what had brought me to Denmark. While in Copenhagen, I had stayed with Michael Bergman, one of Dasha's sons, the brother of Ava, who you heard from before. Michael treated me like family. He told me I was always welcome at his home. Sitting at the restaurant, I was so calm, so at peace, until I connected to Wi-Fi and my phone began to buzz. Friends from Boston were checking in on me. There had been a shooting in Copenhagen. They wanted to know if I was okay. My heart began to panic. I'd been through this before. Just a couple years before, With the Boston Marathon bombings when the city went on lockdown. Terrorist attacks are so rare in Denmark. I lay in bed all night, watching shadows dance on the ceiling, helicopters circled above, a manhunt was underway, and a Jewish guard at the Copenhagen synagogue had been shot and killed. The next morning, Michael took me to the train station. He helped me with my bags and bought a ticket for me, and he kissed me on the forehead like a father would. He said if I needed anything to just call. The station had an eerie quiet that morning. On the train, I squeezed my backpacks in between my legs and watched as police officers and soldiers patrolled the platform. It seemed like everyone was suspect. But no one had asked me for an ID or for my passport. My complexion blended in and provided me with privilege. I fold in my sweatshirt for a pillow and lay my head against the window. The train jumped forward. The color of February was dull brown ground and solid gray sky. I stared out the window at the countryside. It was flat as far as I could see. Farmhouses blurred into a long line of wood and white paint. The landscape soothed my anxiety. As more countries became involved in the war, borders closed, and it became increasingly obvious that Hannah and her friends wouldn't be going to Palestine anytime soon. Hannah moved from one farm to another. The letters from home began to come less often. Her romance with Dasha faded. Reality set in. This is where she would stay. In her diaries, she describes the world she lives in. She screams her words into the paper. She scribbles her frustrations and the moments of feeling invisible and forgotten. That is, until she meets Yansine. In 1941, Ynsine was 21 years old, just a little older than Hannah, who had just turned 16. Yansine was married to a farmer named Arne, and the two of them had a newborn baby. Hannah moved on to their farm. Right away, something felt different to Hannah. She and Yansine talked for hours. Hannah had been in Denmark for almost two years. But on this farm, for the first time, she felt like she belonged. She wrote to her parents. Quote, here I am walking every day and singing, and I do not miss anything. Of course it's not perfect, but when I came here, I felt like home. It's so fine, so trustful and open. I don't have any other word than home. I needed to find out what this life was like, so I did. I followed Hannah's footprints to a farm called Måla all the way to Jensine and her family.
4: This is just so wild. Jensine really has been thinking a lot about hannah so
0: she was always talking about oh what happened to her and we never knew next time on we share the same sky we share the same sky is produced by erica lance and me You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and other podcast apps. Please subscribe and leave a review. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Share the Same Sky. Every episode comes with photographs, videos, and a curriculum that you can use in the classroom. Learn more at sharethesamesky.com. Thank you to USC Shoah Foundation for making this podcast possible. My grandmother's story is one of nearly 55,000 testimonies in their archive from survivors and witnesses of the Holocaust and other genocides. This podcast is also supported by Echoes and Reflections, a program for Holocaust education throughout the United States. I'm Rachel Cerati. Thanks for listening.